Well, it's good to see you all. As you know, we have been working our way towards uh, Resurrection Sunday when we celebrate the victory of the Lord over death and darkness and the grave and hell and all of those things, Satan. And uh, we've come this week to uh, Jesus' cry on the cross, his cry of agony, and um, which a lot of theologians call his cry of dereliction, being rejected and forsaken. And we want to look at the, um, the background of that cry. As you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And often in the New Testament, when people quote passages from the Old Testament, even if it's just a verse, they have that entire context and passage in mind. And so it behooves us to look back at the backdrop of what Jesus was contemplating as he hung on the cross as the innocent uh, sufferer for our sins. Let's turn our hearts to God in a word of prayer. Our Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you and we thank you because you are good to us. Father, we thank you for being our Father and for being our God and for being someone we can run to no matter what we are going through. And we can find in you a refuge. Father in heaven, you say that the, your name is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and they are safe. So, Father, we come to you wanting to hear from you, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would arrest our hearts and our thinking from worldly cares and focus us on what you say to your church in the Scripture. Help me, God, be gracious to me, and please make your appeal through me to the hearts of your people. And we pray that uh, you would remove every impediment from hearing what you say. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you today about a tenacious trust. It's what uh, needs, what you and I need to have in order to live in victory. We need to have a tenacious trust. And that's what we see in, in Psalm 22. As you turn there, if you haven't already, uh, let's think about how God calls us to trust in our sovereign, to tell him our sufferings, to test, taste his salvation, to testify of his steadfast love, and to turn to our Savior in worship and service. Please hear God's word from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. 
Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Let's stop there for a moment. Talk about trust in our sovereign. As you know, David is the author of this psalm, um, along with God, obviously. And oftentimes, David in his life suffered alone. And on occasion, he suffered as an innocent sufferer. You can remember the times that Saul tried to pin him against a wall with a spear just because God was with him and God had left Saul. But this psalm ultimately points to our Lord and Savior as he contemplated it and quoted it from, from the cross. And it's also a psalm that you and I can, can take on and uh, pray to our God as well. And this song begins with a, a strong emotional appeal. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the psalmist is expressing what he is feeling at that moment, that he feels forsaken, he feels abandoned by, by his God. In the case of Jesus Christ, we will see that, that he actually was forsaken and was abandoned because he became sin for, for us. But here, uh, the psalmist is declaring that his his felt uh, affection is that God has forsaken him. That God has, is, not, is not answering him. And there's a big difference between an unanswered prayer and an unheard prayer. And what we find uh, in the beginning of this psalm is unanswered prayer. Have you ever experienced unanswered prayer? When you cry out to God, like the psalmist here, day and night, and you feel like there's, there's no answer from God. He's silent. And notice the language, my God, not my Father, but my God, because he doesn't feel the fatherly affection that God has given to his people, but he just feels like it's a sovereign deity out there who's in control of everything, but, but my circumstances are being unanswered. And he's, he's left to feel uh, the struggle and the groaning and the tears and the restlessness. Have you ever felt that? Jesus felt that on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in that cry of agony, we see an absolute trust. He didn't say, God, God, why did you forsake me? But my God. He knew that God was his. And so he had an absolute trust in his God. And not only that, but you see an absolute uh, a cry of, of absolute innocence. Why have you forsaken me? It's not as if Jesus is looking for information. He knows why he's on the cross. He knows why he came to this world. He, he prepped his disciples three times that we're going to Jerusalem and this is what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. It's not like he's caught off guard or caught by surprise. And his declaration, why have you forsaken me, is a declaration of innocence. That there's no real reason why God would forsake him unless he was on the cross for some other reason. And it says here that he has been groaning and he has been crying and 
And oftentimes that's the case with us, that we cry out to God and our prayers are not answered, uh, but that does not mean they are not heard. And notice his response to being unanswered. Notice his response to being restless and, and groaning and praying and at, the, at daytime and praying at nighttime and feeling forsaken and feeling broken before God. He declares in verse 3, you are holy, yet you are holy. And it's interesting that he, he points out the holiness of God. The holiness of God, that God is, is separate from everything and every one. People sometimes foolishly say that God is like a Coca-Cola, he's the real thing. God is not like a Coca-Cola, everybody. Coca-Cola's got caffeine and too much sugar and it'll mess your teeth up. It's not good for you. Once in a while, right? <laughs> but you can't say that about God. God is totally other than anything else in the world. Not only that, is it, the holiness points to him being separate from everything and everyone, but holiness means that God is absolutely and wholly righteous. And it means that he's absolutely and wholly sinless. Uh, the, the apostle said that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all that God is good and upright and there is no wickedness in him at all. He is holy and, and in the midst of, of not being answered in prayer, in the midst of being feeling, feeling forsaken in your cries to God, in the midst of, of restless nights, it's important for us to know to cry, God, you are holy. In all that I'm going through, you are holy. You are blameless. We just sang, didn't we? You are holy and we echoed it. Right? And that meant we meant it, right? And so, so when, when you go through the storm, that declaration that God, you are holy. You are completely faultless and blameless in all of this. Not only that, but God is present. He's enthroned upon the praises of Israel. The old King James says He inhabits the praises of His people. And so it's a cry that in the midst of our cries, when we feel unanswered, it's a time to worship and praise. Paul said from a prison cell, uh, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say, rejoice. It's always a time to praise God. There's never a second in any day where we just can say, well, this is not a time to praise God. There's always a time to praise God. What time is it? It's, it's worship time. It's, it's rejoicing in the Lord time. He inhabits the praises of his people. And not only that, but God's got a reputation. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted. In you, they trusted. Three times, they trusted. They were not put to shame. And so it's a cry to, to the trustworthiness of God. You can depend on God. State Farm, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Sometimes they're there if you're not at fault but be at fault and see how they're there. Your insurance goes up, but God is a real friend. He's always there. He's trustworthy. You can depend on Him. He doesn't change. He remains the same. His years will never end. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so as Jesus contemplated on the cross, He appealed to the years of old. He appealed to uh, a passage, for example, like Exodus chapter 2, uh, verse 23. And 24, where it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned 
because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And just like that, the psalmist and Jesus on the cross, he appealed to ages gone by and said, the fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried for rescue and trusted in you and they weren't put to shame. And so that's what he rests in in the midst of, of being unanswered, in the midst of feeling forsaken. But then in verse 6 it shifts. But I am a worm and not a man. That there's a difference here. Something has happened. That, that the collective prayers of God's people in, in years gone by, they were answered. But here you have this lone voice that is put to shame. He's a worm. He's not a man. He's scorned by mankind, despised by the people. By the people. The people in passages like this often refers to the nation as a whole. Whereas in the past, the nation as a whole cried out to God and were heard, but now the nation as a whole is scorning the very one who's come to save them. They've turned on their Messiah. They've turned on Jesus Christ. He's despised by the people. They, they look down on Him. He's counted as light and insignificant. They mock Him. They make mouths at Him. They wag their heads, which is a way of, of embarrassing or humiliating or shaming someone. Look at you, Jesus. You trust in the Lord. Why don't the Lord come and deliver you? So we see that, that when Jesus was on the cross and that his, his own people, as it says in John 1, 1, 1, 11 rather, it says that he came to his own house, to his own people, and they didn't want him. They didn't receive him. They rejected him. And so, so what does he turn to at this point? In verse 9, he says, Yet you are he who took me from my mother's womb. Not only does God have a, a reputation, uh, the psalmist appeals to the fact that God's got a relationship with me. He's got a rep, but he's also got a relationship. You took me from my mother's womb. That, that's a history, that's a personal history. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. This is a good passage for infant baptism. I thought I'd throw that in there, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> Jesus was circumcised. The sign of the covenant was given to him, and at his mother's breast, he was made to trust. On you I was cast at from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. That's some serious praying there, man. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Isn't that true of every single follower of Jesus Christ? Doesn't it say in Ephesians chapter 1 that before the foundation of the world, you were chosen in him, chosen in Christ Jesus before God ever said, let there be light? He chose you in Christ Jesus even before your mother's womb. That's some serious stuff there, man. That's some serious love. I mean, this guy is suffering so much. David is, and, and Jesus, our Savior, is suffering so much. He appeals not only to the reputation of God, but he appeals to the relationship 
that he has had with God. You have been my God from my mother's womb. And he cries out, be not far from me, for trouble is near. Notice he says, be not far from me, because he feels like God is far off in left field. For trouble is near and there is none to help. The, the, the psalmist, David, our Savior, has been reduced to being all by himself with nobody to help. He's alone. He's alone. That's the way he feels in his heart and in his soul. And then in verse 12, we find that uh, he, he, we're called to tell, tell our God, our sovereign, our sufferings. Let's, let's read on. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Tell him your sufferings. You know, when you have rested in the reputation of God and rested in the relationship that you have with God, then you are able to focus and look at the sufferings you are actually dealing with. Because you know that you have a God who's in your court. He is related to me. He's got a reputation. And the Bible says earlier in the Psalter, in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, it says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Jeremiah said that you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with your whole heart. And he's able because of the relationship that he has. And that's, that's true of you. You have a relationship if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. God has known you from before time. God's got a reputation you can rest in and stand on. And because of that, you can look at the troubles and sorrows that you have and you can recount them to God. You can lay all of your troubles before the feet of your God. You notice that how, how the psalmist, how Jesus is surrounded by bulls. The imagery here is that of an of a, of a animal that has horns. Have you ever seen a person actually, have you ever watched these matadors? People who, whose IQ is a little bit questionable at that point but uh, they feel like just a little red, red carpet. They can just hold it and play games. And they, the, the object is to get as close to the bull as possible and not get hit. You know, if I saw a bull with horns like that, you would see how fast I can run. I'd be like the clown, not the matter. I'm not going to sit there and try to play with no bull that weighs 1,100 pounds. I'm not, I, don't, I don't weigh that much. I don't have nothing to give that bull. You know what I'm saying? I can't get with that. So I'm going to get out of there. But the imagery is of a bull charging to gore, and the imagery is of a lion, the same thing with lions. Lions are serious animals. They are man-eaters. I don't know if you've ever been to the zoo, um, but the only reason those people stand and look at those lions is because they're behind steel bars. Open the gate. See how many people you got still standing there. Lions will eat you. They will actually eat you up, you know? I mean, it's one thing to have a tick 
biting you or a mosquito biting you, which is serious. But to have something actually with a head bigger than your head actually open up and put your head inside of it, that's serious stuff. And so the imagery here is that this, this, this sufferer sees his, he's surrounded by, by animals, which seems to be beasts that are stronger than him, more ferocious. He has exposed himself, as, as, as the, uh, the prophet said in Isaiah 53, he has exposed his soul unto death. He's opened himself up, and that's what Jesus did on the cross. He was innocent, and yet he exposed. It says that he, because he poured out his soul to death, which is a word that means he exposed himself. He opened himself up to death. And so you see these animals, these wild beasts of, of, of people. And the result in verse 14 is that his, he's poured out like water. He is broken. He is unstable. His, joint, his, his bones are out of joint. And, and the, the picture there in the Hebrew idiom is that he's been torn to pieces and scattered. Part of him is there and part of him is over there. That's the way he feels in his soul. He feels broken and shattered. His heart has melted in his breast. His strength is dried up. His, his, his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. You ever try talking with your tongue stuck to the roof of your mouth? You can't do it. He's thirsty. His body is ebbing away. And notice what he says at the end of verse 15. You lay me in the dust of death. And so he receives all of the suffering from the hand of God. And when you go through sufferings, you must receive those sufferings from the hand of God. Because they couldn't come to you unless God allowed it, God permitted it, or God ordered it. When, when, when Job was, being, was suffering, God is the one who started that fight. Satan was going to and fro on earth looking for someone to devour, and God is the one who said, have you considered my servant Job? I'm sure if Job was up in heaven seeing it, he'd be like, hold up, man, what's up? You know? <laughs> but the point is, you have to understand that God has a purpose in our sufferings. He has a purpose to bring about the character of God. And in the case of Jesus Christ, he had a purpose in his suffering is to bring many more sons into glory. There already was a son in glory. But, just, but the way God had created the world, the way God endeavored to purpose the world, the intent God made in the world was that it wouldn't just be one son in glory, but there would be a host of children in glory. And so they have to see our suffering from a missional standpoint. The Apostle Paul said, and we've looked at it many times here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that the afflictions that he received, blessed be the God of comfort who comforts us with, with, uh, in all of our affliction, that we might be able to comfort others in their affliction. And so there's not only a missional uh, uh, purpose in this, but there's also a, a, a sympathetic, an empathy purpose in this, that you might be able to relate to those who are suffering as well. The Bible says that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of the living God. We have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities because he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has dealt with the troubles and the temptations that we deal with. And so he, we can bring our sufferings to him, and he can sit down and he knows what we're going through. You lay me in the dust of death. What's going on in there? Isaiah 53 tells us in verse 10, Isaiah 53, verse 10, uh, the, the prophet says with respect to Jesus, and um, 
It says, yet it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Gethsemane means crushing. It's a wine press. It was God's will to crush Jesus. Why? It was the will of the Lord to crush him when his soul makes an offering for guilt. God wanted to crush Jesus because Jesus was coming to make his, his soul an offering for guilt so that guilty people might be able to bring Jesus to God. Back in the old covenant when they had a tabernacle, people would bring little lambs to, to the priest and, say, and put their hands on the lamb and, and they would kill the lamb and say, my sin's been transferred. Well, Jesus came and Jesus was crushed and Jesus was laid in the dust so, so we could take Jesus' hand and, 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 and walk Jesus, walk with Jesus to God and say, here's the reason. He's the reason why I'm coming to you. He's the one who's going to take my guilt away. Jesus Christ is the, is the only, only lawyer who comes in the courtroom. You, you're never going to find no lawyer in, in the yellow pages like this. You can look up all them names you want. You can go to lawyers.com. You're never going to find a lawyer who comes to court having already paid for the crime that brings you to court. He's already taken the punishment for you. So unlike normal defense attorneys, when the prosecution stands up and makes their case, and the attorney's sitting there trying to get his paperwork together to, to defend, this lawyer simply stands up and says, look at this. Look at my hands. Look at my side. It's already paid for. And the prosecution goes running out of the courtroom because that same lawyer has the has the robe of the judge and can stand up with the gavel and announce you innocent. And so he was laid in the dust so he might make himself an offering for our guilt, that he might take the stain away from us. Notice how he goes on and, and, and says how these dogs encompass him. And here we talked about a couple weeks ago how they divided his garments and cast lots for them. It's the final humiliation for the crucified is that while you're still dying on the cross, people are taking your goods and gambling for them. It's like you find somebody that's gotten beat up bad in the street and they're bleeding to death, and you come there and say, where's the wallet? Where's the, can I have your wallet? Give me your wallet, your watch. You don't need it no more, you're dying. They're gloating over him. It's like a pack of hyenas, mocking and laughing. You ever see how hyenas attack? You ever hear a hyena laugh? It's very eerie. And, and they're, they're, not, they're not laughing because somebody told a good joke, you know. They're laughing because they're about to eat somebody up. They're vicious, vicious animals. And that's what these animals are. They're like dogs. Notice it says here, like dogs, they surround me. An evil company encircles me. Some of you uh, have an African background, and you know about the, the dogs that they have over there, wild dogs. They're some serious animals. They'll kill you and eat you up. And so that's what the psalmist is saying here, that, that he feels encircled, he feels encompassed, he feels gloated over, he feels like he's just been simply left for dead. But then in verse 19, there's a turn, a serious turn, as we look at taste his salvation. Look at verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
Notice uh, the language in verse 19, but you, O Lord. This is the first time that the psalmist has shifted from God to Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name. He's now remembered, he's recalling how God has, has made a promise to him. And the same as he made a promise to his people of old in Exodus chapter 6, he promised through Moses at that time that, that God would be God Almighty for his people, that he would bring them into a land of promise. He would bring them out of slavery, that he would watch over them, and he would be their God, and he would, they would be his people. But you, O God, O Lord, be not far off. Notice how he continues to pray no matter how bad the suffering has become. He does not give up. Remember how it says in Luke 18, how the widow, she kept praying, she kept after the unrighteous judge. She kept asking him, give me justice against my enemy. And the, the judge kept ignoring her and ignoring her. And, and the reason why the righteous judge gave her what she asked for is because the righteous judge loved himself so much. He said, if this woman keeps coming to me, she's going to give me a black eye. She's getting on my nerves. She's stressing me out. I will just give her what she wants because I have too much love for myself to have to go through all of this. Now, how much more will your Father in heaven who loves you, he's got love for you, how much more is he going to come to your rescue? When you, but it's, but it's, it's those who are crying in faith to him. When the Lord comes, will he find those in faith crying, praying to him? And so you see here, he's still praying to the Lord. He's asking for deliverance. And notice in verse 21, which is, one of the key verses of this psalm. It says, save me from the mouth of the lions. You have answered. You know, you can look at that verse uh, as if something in the past that you answered, you rescued in the past, but you'd be looking at it wrong because the, the tense of that verb is a perfect tense. It's a tense that means that God already heard something in the past, but it has present implications. You remember how the prophet Daniel prayed when, when God's people were in trouble, in chapter 9 of, of Daniel, uh, verse, verse uh, 23, it says, um, Gabriel comes and he says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I come to tell you about it, that you are greatly loved. In chapter 10 of Daniel, verse 11 and 12, it says, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I know that you have been sent, I, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. From the moment that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He already was heard. He was heard at that moment. It's the same with God's people, the apple of his eye. When you cry out to God, when you humble yourself before him, at the moment you reach out to your Father in heaven, he hears your prayer. But it takes time for an answer to come sometimes because God is working in the midst. He's working at the time that you're waiting. When you're waiting, God is working. Don't think he's, he's twiddling his thumbs. And so he was rescued from the wild oxen 
And so his response to all of this is to testify to his great steadfast love. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Testify to his steadfast love. That's the response for being heard by God, is to be in the midst of the congregation. You notice before in this chapter that the, the, the psalmist, that the Messiah was surrounded by enemies, surrounded by foes, but because of tenacious faith and tenacious trust and crying out to God, now he is surrounded by his brothers in the midst of the congregation. That he says that in the, in, the, in the congregation, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And so this is instructive for us when we come to church. When we come to church, Jesus is the choir master. He is the lead choir director. He's the one who leads us into song. He's the one who promises to tell you about the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the righteous can run there and find refuge and safety. The name of the Lord we've talked about many times because of the work of Christ on the cross. The name of the Lord towards you is a name that says mercy and grace. He's slow to become angry. He's abundant in, in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving wickedness, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He's a God who comes to us, a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the same God that we worship. He's the same one that we cry out to. In the midst of the congregation, he promises to declare the name of the Lord. And it says that, he says this to all who are the offspring of Israel. Don't think for a moment it's just talking about Jewish people. You are a child of Abraham. You are the offspring of Israel. The way Israel even became a nation is because of a dead woman's womb. Her womb was a tomb. Sarah's womb was dead. She had already been in the menopause. She didn't even have any pause. She never had no flow. She was barren from birth. Her womb was dead. Her husband had one foot on a banana peel and one foot in the grave. He was as good as dead. But God said something. God brought life where there was death. Remember how Jesus stood outside of Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus was four days dead and he stunk. But Jesus said, Lazarus, and the man shook. He woke up because of the word of Jesus Christ. That's how you got saved. You were dead in transgressions and sins. You and I were lost, but Jesus spoke. And something happened, you came to life. You were dead and now you're alive. You were lost, but now you're found. You've been brought into the company of Israel, the true Israel. You've been brought into the church. And so you're an offspring of the living God. You're his child. God's seed dwells in you. God does not despise the afflicted. He does not despise your afflictions. When you hide yourself in him, he does not hide his face from you. Notice it says again, but, but he has heard. It's the same perfect tense. He heard when he cried. God hears when you cry. The question is not, 
according to Luke 18, the question is not, um, will uh, God show justice to his elect? The question is not, will Jesus be, do right by you? The question is, will Jesus find faith? Faith that cries out to him day and night when he shows up. That's the question. Will his people pray? Our testimony of the steadfast love should lead us to turning to our Savior in worship and service. Look at verses 27 through following. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And so the end result of all of the suffering of, of our Savior is that the ends of the earth would, would call to mind what the Lord has done. That they would turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations would worship and bow down before him. And, and it says in verse 29, the prosperous as well as the, the wretched, those who could not keep themselves alive, those without resources, they will turn to the Lord. The end result of Jesus' suffering is that generations to come will, will serve him and worship him, and that you would tell those who are not even born about him. And look at what it says in verse 31. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness. His righteousness. The Bible says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of, of God because it is, it is, it is, the, it is a, um, ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation through faith. And because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteous way of making unrighteous people righteous before Him. That's what the righteousness of God is. His righteous way of making unrighteous people righteous before Him. None of us has any reason to come to God the way we are. We are sinful people. We can't walk into the presence of God. We're unholy beings. But there is Jesus Christ, the Savior. Because of His precious blood and His perfect righteousness, we can come into the presence of God. The Bible says when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curtain in the temple was ripped in half from top to bottom. The way into the most holy place of all was ripped open by God Himself. We're back in the garden with God. The angels have moved aside. The cherubim have been, have been relaxed. They put the sword down. They said, you can come into the presence of God. It's because of what Christ has done, because He has given you righteousness. That's our proclamation that we have a righteous Savior. Sometimes people foolishly think, sometimes we foolishly think that we can just come to God all by our lonesome. We need an advocate. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And because of his righteousness, because, because the gospel says to you that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for you, so that in Christ Jesus you might become the righteousness of God. God switched the script. He switched the script on us. Jesus says, give me your record of unrighteousness. Give me all of your record of disobedience. You take my record of righteousness. Let's switch records. 
You take mine, I'll take yours. I'll take your punishment. You get my reward. That's something to proclaim. That's something to shout in the streets. That's something to shout all around your house. That's something to get excited about. That's something that gets you started on your day, that I'm righteous in God's sight. That when God looks at me, my life is hidden with Christ in God. He doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he declares you're innocent. He declares you're righteous. He declares you're sinless. You're justified in his sight. And it's going to always be that way. He's done it. He's finished it. He's paid the debt. It's over. You won. You've got victory because of Jesus. It says he has done it. God accomplished this thing. By grace you have been saved through faith. Even faith is a gift. The whole thing is a gift. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. We can't manufacture this stuff. We don't even want it in ourselves. But God is the one who opened up our eyes and said, See, you're about to fall. You're about to drop. You're dead in your sins. Hanging over hell. Waiting to, to burn up. But Jesus is the one who came, and he's the one who's accomplished it. He was forsaken because Jesus was made a curse so that we might be blessed. Jesus was made sin so we might be made righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Folks, you've got reason to shout. No reason to pout. You can jump all about because Jesus has called you out. Yes, he has. You know, sometimes when we call people out, it's embarrassing, but Jesus called you out in a good way. You know how they do on Price is Right? Come on down. Jesus said, come on down to Calvary. Humble yourself before the Lamb's blood and get washed. Get clean. Mr. Clean ain't got nothing on Jesus. I'm going to tell you that right now. Spick and span ain't got nothing on him. You ain't got to shout this one out, baby. You can just cry out to God. He'll wash you in his blood. This is good stuff, man. You know what I mean? You need to get into this stuff. And take that thing with you when you go to the supermarket. You got in line. People ask you, are you in line? I'm in Christ, baby. <laughs> and I'm in line, too. So get on back there and follow me to Jesus. All right, I'm going to close in prayer. Some of you think I'm not going to ever be quiet. Let's pray. Our Father in Christ's name, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was forsaken. We thank you that he exposed himself to death, to all of the mocking, all of the spitting, all of the shame, all of the humiliation, even the nakedness, taking our sin upon himself so that we might stand in your holy place, righteous in your sight, and see a smile on your face and arms wide open to welcome us home. Father, thank you that uh, you call us to faith and thank you that we can be tenacious in our faith and we won't be put to shame. We won't come up hopeless. We've got a strong anchor for our soul that enters into the most holy place where Jesus has gone before us. Father, thank you for the pioneer of our faith. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he intercedes for us. He ever lives to do so. He's going to pray us right to glory. Thank you, Lord, that the good work you began, you will faithfully bring that work into completion until the day when Christ Jesus appears. Help us to walk faithfully, joyfully with him until that time. In Jesus' name, amen.